Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Tulsa World Video Podcast. I'm Jenny Graham, Editorial's Editor. Bobby said, Editorial Writer. And we're back after a week of vacation. I had a good, relaxing Thanksgiving, and you? You know, I did, and I learned a few things. Oh, you yes. learned things? So we went to Tennessee to visit uh, uh, my in-laws, uh, Nashville area. Um, there's definitely a Nashville type. That's a real thing. Okay. Uh, they, they look a lot like what you see in the Hallmark Christmas movies. Anyway, uh, what I learned on one day going out into the park and uh, throwing the Frisbee with uh, and the football with the nephews is that if you decide you're going to say, hey, let's go run football routes. At age 52, running, cutting, sprinting, you know, going all out to catch a pass. Yeah, homie, you're going to pay yeah. for that. <laughs> That's why you go bowling. That's bowling why would have been safer. You, you go bowling. That's, that's what we do. That, we didn't do it this last time. Yeah. But what I also kind of learned now that you watch Hallmark Christmas movies. So, hey, we'll have, we'll have uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a list to, to go by. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, that's well, playing in the background that I'm doing other things during the holiday. That there slide. is a limit. There is a limit. But we missed uh, a week. And there was tragic news, up news. It was, but the tragic news was sort of overshadowed everything. And I know I came in and changed out editorials just because I was so moved and bothered by the Club Q shooting in Colorado because we had a Broken Arrow resident, Dan Aston, who died, gunned down. He had moved up there. He worked at Elote uh, downtown and he was you know, a leader in the LGBTQ community here. And also when he attended NSU in Tahlequah and his mother gave an interview. And I'll tell you what got me about the interview. She, she gave an interview to Andrea Eager and she told her, I have friends and family who don't want me to speak out because they're fearful for my safety. That the, the, the shooting happened at a LGBTQ club or catered to, and there's so much hate going on that just speaking about your son who died, and her son was a transgender man, but just being able to speak on behalf of him in death was scary for people. And I think that's in itself a really sad state of affairs for America that a mother in mourning is told, please don't speak for your child because of your safety. What does that, I mean, I was just so bothered by that, that that's where we're at. And I'm also bothered by the shootings. And then what, Thanksgiving day or the day before Thanksgiving, there's a shooting at a Walmart, a supervisor mm -hmm. comes in and I'm just, I don't know. I, I'm, I feel somewhat paralyzed at this point because we, you and I have written so much about the need for gun reforms. We're not in a good place. No. And we are just being controlled by guns. And this cannot be good. And of course, the legislature, legislators are putting in early legislation. We've already got legislation to make it even easier to get guns in Oklahoma. That, you know, kids should be able to buy guns. And, you know, 
we would, it's just, I don't know, Bob. How, how, how are we going to write these stories that resonate with America to think about this differently and to think about it empathetically? I don't know. Um, I think we have a, this sort of ties in together. So bear with me just for a second. Okay. We have a tendency to either not care or dismiss problems unless it involves us personally. Right. Uh So you've got a person who, you know, going back to the club Q shooting, um, Folks might not think anything of that, might not care, unless it's their kid who comes out, or if it's their brother or sister who comes out, and then is subjected to some kind of violence based on being gay. Uh, People tend to not really think about gun violence unless it happens to them, or it happens near them, or it happens to somebody that they care about. Um, that's something that happens in the city that doesn't happen out here, that kind of stuff. So it's a true fact that living in the United States is objectively more dangerous than it is in other developed countries, Europe, Canada, whatever, you know, Japan, South Korea, it just is, you know, if you were to talk about what your experiences are with gun violence to your average Brit, Aussie, German, Japanese person, they would probably be kind of shocked. And I go back to a column I wrote a few weeks back or a few months back where I was saying, I know more people who have died on the wrong end of a gun than I know who died in traffic accidents. That's true. They're like three to one type of thing. And then a few weeks ago, I wrote another column that was based around a shooting that happened like a couple blocks from my house. Lucky somebody didn't die in that one because the dude emptied a clip on a car he was shooting at. Um, Now, life goes on. The neighborhood is nice and quiet and people are putting up Christmas lights and blah, blah, blah. But it is one of those things I feel that it's become the violence aspect has become so normalized. We're so used to it anymore. I don't know what's going to get people to think about it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know at this point. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little paralyzed again. And uh, I was viewing that story through her eyes because that's, she was the one who gave the interview. Mm-hmm. And then the coworker from Elote spoke incredibly highly of him and just that loss of life just gets I think sometimes lost in the statistics of things true and in the rhetoric of things that we've got to make it safer and I don't know what that's going to take so but that was one of the the things that changed last week for us revisit the rhetoric thing real quick sure so Something that's been going on the past year is this whole talk of groomer stuff. Yes. Oh, yes. That That's, let's be real with this, okay? When people start talking about there, there's a bunch of people, there's a cabal of people that are grooming your in kids. In leadership, in elected leadership. In elected leadership, high platform people, they're doing this kind of stuff. And now we're shocked that somebody 
takes a couple of guns, finds a place where LGBTQ people are hanging out, and then starts lighting them up like a video game. That's the kind of stuff when you start thinking about, well, I have a religious, you know, beef with this or that or that or that. Well, let's take a look at your religion and say what it says about murder. Well, and that kind of rhetoric is is implying a crime, is implying things that aren't happening. And we've got to call people out on that when they're saying so-and-so's grooming or indoctrinating. No, they aren't. You have a political disagreement. That's different. And that's, you're right, that that plays into this. It really is. Even if you have, you know, I'm trying to be, cover my basis here. If you have a religious uh, problem with homosexuality, that should be trumped by having a religious problem with murder. And my goodness, you should be, hoping that the things that you say and the people the things that are said in your community are not starting to push people over the edge and thinking you know yeah these people deserve to die and we should kill them that's a problem and as easy as it is to get the kind of weaponry that can kill a lot of people really quickly i think that burden becomes that much higher to watch what comes out of your mouth and that's all i want to say on that well, there was a hero in there. A person actually beat the shooter with his own weapon. And that took a, a war veteran and he's getting the accolades deserved. And so there, there were some good things that came out of last week. It was, um, not, that wasn't a good thing, but it was something there that there are good people in the world. Yeah. And, you know, in thinking about that last week, that among all of this violence and chaos, that hope comes through with with finding those heroes. And one of the the editorials that I did want to mention last week, so I was when we were thinking of sometimes things we miss in our community that I think needed to be, you know, congratulated was the Oklahoma Eagle. It's a mm-hmm. black owned newspaper uh, that has covered news for black Tulsans for a hundred years. They celebrated their hundred year anniversary this year. And we I I've known this and I wanted to to just publicly Thank them for that. The Goodwin family has been the stewards of that institution for most of its existence. It's a fascinating beginning. They grew literally out of the ashes of the race massacre. The, mm. the founders got the press from the smoldering ruins of Greenwood and started pu- publishing. And for a hundred years, they've held, they've covered Greenwood and North Tulsa which has been primarily where Black Tolsons lived, and just issues that pertain to Black Tolsons and Black Oklahomans. And they've held people accountable. They've had good journalism and they have survived. And it says a lot about Tulsa that it does survive. I mean, the fact that we have that kind of media, that we have media still working, that's a good sign. That's a healthy sign for our community. And I just wanted to congratulate them and say that their product is good. It's real. They've made a lot of changes and it's now on my to read list. Every issue I pick, pick it up and I learn things and I, they're great fellow journalists in this community that I think they deserve to, to, to be recognized. So congratulations. Pick it up. Yes, it is a big milestone. 
And the other thing we wrote about was Project Santa. So Project Santa has been going on for 94 years, started with the Tulsa Tribune in 1928, whatever 94 years ago was, and it raises money. Back then it was community chest, but now it kind of morphed into raising money for the Salvation Army, specifically for families at the holidays to help them buy what they need. And so we profile the clients throughout the month and try to, we have a $275,000 goal we're trying to raise for Salvation Army. But, you know, and I used to write those when I was doing reporting. And I've always been interested in sort of the themes that emerge out of those stories. Because, and first of all, these people are opening up their lives to us. And I do not take that for granted. Because when you're down on your luck and you're facing all kinds of challenges, to invite a reporter in, to get pictures, hear your story. I mean, that takes a lot of courage. Most people don't want to talk about that. And they're in the thick of that chaos. And they're saying, here's how we got here. For years, there's, there has been a, a thread of medical, healthcare, almost every single family there has been a health emergency completely beyond their control that has added to their financial stress, not to mention just emotional stress. Yeah. And I've always kind of felt that some of those stories were a gauge of where we are, what, what's going on in our community. And it has been almost two decades of healthcare be, being more and more of an issue. So, I mean, what when you read those stories, what sort of goes through... What do you pick up on? Well, it's just what you said. Um, it seems like the bulk of them, it's some sort of health thing that knocks them out of work and lays them with, you know, insurmountable amount of bills. Um, it, it shouldn't be this way, but that's, that's, this is how we live. It, it is. And it's like, a cancer diagnosis shouldn't mean bankruptcy, but so often yeah. it does. You know, yeah, health problems, you know, heart problems. And and it, it I what's interesting about those features is that it also shows that how much is just it's not this poor decision making, which is a stereotype. Yeah. These are just poor decision making, they didn't do something. A lot of, they're just it's hard luck sometimes. You have a healthcare problem, then you get laid off from your job. Or your your child gets sick and you've been downsized. I mean, it's just, and I'm I'm grateful for that, and I really encourage people to donate because it makes a big yeah. difference. Sometimes it's just people want to have holiday lights. I mean, it's amazing some of the things that you don't think about that people it would really change their their outlook and need. Most of them are just needing; they would like to have gifts for their kids, but they yeah, also need all... and clothing. Yeah, we're all on the edge, whether we know it or not, unless mm -hmm. you're just fabulously wealthy. Um, a recession, a layoff, a health problem, the next thing you know, that's you. You know, you're a step away from living in your car. Um, so it's tough. And I think that's, just, that's something that the series, I think, is a good reminder for everybody. And it's also an opportunity to say, hey, here's some folks that could use a lift right now. It doesn't take much. 
just a little bit and you know you can you can help them get by and i mean sometimes that's what they need that's what folks down on their luck need is they need just somebody to build a little bit of a bridge for them so they can catch up and then life can get back to a more stable you know better path you know folks aren't looking for food stamps so they can buy steak and lobster and Budweiser and, and all that kind of stuff and lottery tickets. They're actually just wanting to do what you're talking about. They just, they don't want their lights to turn off. They want to be able to not get evicted. They would like to have a, maybe a couple of things under the tree. They're not asking for vacations and six figure cars and all that kind of stuff. That's the other thing I, I, I forgot to mention. Almost all of them mention how they view this as temporary. None of them view their situation as long-term. They just are hitting a rough patch. And yeah. so many of them, even if they've come from a generation, generational poverty situation, they all have optimism. And some of them even say, you know, when I get through this, I'm going to pay it back. I'm going to, you know, and so these, there's an optimism there too, which is sometimes what we need in that. And that even and it's also reassuring that people who are facing the kind of obstacles, they're still they're still have hope and optimism and and sort of that drive to to get past it. So um, so that's but anyway, if you can give any little bit helps. And so moving into the columns for this weekend. Mm -hmm. So I have been holding on to a series of stories. For about a couple of years, I was researching. We have, as you know, Bob, the morgue, as we call it, mm -hmm. basically just a floor with archived copies going back to like 20s, 30s. They're print that people have cut out through this decades and they're in files and you can get lost in this morgue of just looking through stuff. So I was researching some other topic and I came across this 1972 series. It was a four-part series that the Tulsa Tri Tribune did. And it caught my attention because that was the, it was the year I was born, 1972. And it was about interracial marriage. And it was fascinating in that it was such a controversial topic that they use pseudonyms. They wouldn't use the, the real names of people they were interviewing because they, because of harassment. And it was just examining this growing issue of interracial marriage and how controversial it was and how are people dealing with it. And I thought at the time, I'm going to keep this because it was, I couldn't find a reason to write about it. I found it fascinating and I viewed it as quaint, like the progress we've made in just a couple of generations, because now interracial marriage, it's like no one pays. I mean, who, no one, no one cares. No one minds. It's the norm. Um, I walk through the halls of schools every day and so many children are of interracial marriages. They're, they're multiracial. It's just not an issue. And it, I, it, I held on to it and it hit my mind again with the U.S. Senate voted to pass the Respect for Marriage Act. And the Respect for Marriage Act is to protect interracial and same-sex marriages because the logic that reversed Roe v. Wade Clarence Thomas specifically mentioned that we can now revisit the right to same-sex marriage and contraception. Mm -hmm. He didn't mention interracial marriage. He is married. He is a black man married to a white woman. But that exact same argument and the protections for interracial marriage 
is the same. It's the same legal foundation. So I just brought it up again. I just think, and what was interesting is the same reasonings that were being used to oppose interracial marriage are the same reasonings being used to oppose same-sex marriage. Everything from concerns for children to the Bible says it's wrong, that that was used for, you know, opposing interracial marriage, used now, and it was used on the floor of the Senate. Senator Langford uh, argued against it on the floor. Jim Inhofe voted against it too, but he argued about religious liberties, that this trampled on religious liberties. And another senator, and I can't remember which one, made the argument that by allowing for same-sex marriage, it takes rights away from devout Christians and other people who oppose it on religious grounds, takes it away from them and gives it to, to gay couples. And I don't see that. No one, no one says you have to you know, go to a wedding. No one says you have to you know, marry a gay person. No one says you have to, you know, that churches have to marry gay couples. It's just saying that legally, because so many of our policies, and we have a lot of policies around taxes and benefits based on marriage status, that you can't discriminate as a government. If you're going to be in the business of issuing licenses and doing business that way, you can't discriminate. So I brought it up again. So I just found that series to be still relevant, even it's sadly, but it, that does make me think, what are we like 50 years ago? That was such a big topic. Now it's not a big deal. 50 years from now, is anyone going to care about same-sex marriage in the same way? I don't think so. I think, I mean, when you talk to young people today, it is just not an issue. So, you know, and I think that's the thing to think about is the future does belong to the younger generation right now. So you, I think you got a pretty solid point there that it won't be as controversial as it is now. And I think when you look at polling, when I read through your column, I looked at the arc of time that it took from, you know, small, small minority saying, yes, interracial marriage is okay to large majority saying it's okay. And a span, you know, a, a couple or three decades or something like that, you know, a long time. With same-sex marriage, that arc is much shorter. Mm -hmm. You know, we went from when people started talking about it, you know, in the early 2000s, it was very low. And fast forward a, a decade and a half, a little less than that, mm -hmm. you know, it was like two thirds and now it's like 70 something percent are saying, yeah, it's okay. So I thought that was interesting and probably worth studying. It, it, it's interesting to me that we went from disapproval to approval polling wise of same sex marriage much faster than we did to interracial marriage. That I'm not sure what to make of that. That maybe just things change faster now? Maybe, or maybe because there are more interracial marriages, people just view loves differently. I mean, what we're talking about is can we allow, are you going to allow a person to marry who they love? Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I, and I could say that I'm around teenagers a lot and this is just not an issue. Matter of fact, they're, maybe it's the groups they hang out with, but they're annoyed it is an issue on the, the, the national stage. 
They just don't view it. At, they just view other things are bigger issues for them. The economy, climate change, other things. I mean, other rights are, are they are bothered when rights are taken away for certain. And they don't view this as taking away rights, anyone's rights. And I have to agree. I don't see, I see this as expanding rights, not taking away rights. But well, fundamentally, you know, that's definitely true. I don't think you, you could make an argument that, you know, your marriage or my marriage is being compromised legally or otherwise by a same sex couple getting a marriage license. Right. You know, they're not forcing churches to, uh, officiate same-sex marriages if they do not wish to, you know, individual people who marry folks, they're not, they don't have to do that. They don't have to marry anybody they don't want to marry. Right. Um, I always saw this as a fairness thing myself. Um, you mentioned the, all the benefits that are wrapped around marriage. And, um, you know, if you got a couple people that have been together for a really long time, uh, they're going to be committed to that and yet have fewer health care rights, property rights, inheritance rights, and stuff like that than, than folks who are, you know, in opposite sex marriages. And I think legally speaking, you know, throw out all the other stuff, legally speaking, that becomes a problem. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, the government's gotten in the business of, of marriage. They recognize marriage through licenses, and then they base it, public policy is often based on your marital status. So if they're going to do that, you can't discriminate. That's what it comes down for me. So mm -hmm. speaking of uh, rights and tyranny, <laughs> you remind everyone this weekend of just how bad the Russians are. See, 50 years from it, 50 years ago, we were talking about how bad the Russians are. I don't know. I'm thinking 50 years from now, we're still going to be talking about how bad the Russians are. And you lay out the argument that because there's this growing movement that, oh, we should pull back support on Ukraine. And you're like, uh, uh, let me give you a refresher. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, we've been down this road before with how much do you accommodate a ruthless, tyrannical regime? And I know it's a trope that people like to avoid in talking about the Nazis. But in the 1930s, there was a lot of appeasement going on saying, well, surely they won't go this far. Surely they won't go that far. If we make this deal, you know, maybe they won't be so bad. And, you know, what we found out is they really did get that bad and much worse. Now, when I wrote this, it's not trying to say Russian people are terrible. Because, you know, Russian people are just people, right? It's right. like the rest of us. They're surviving. But there are institutions in Russia that have, you know, going back to this word, institutionalized a disregard for human rights going back many, many decades. And it is something that persists now. They do not care about human life. They are sending their own people you know, with inadequate arms, inadequate training, inadequate clothing to get thrown into a meat grinder in Ukraine without any care. There are, there are literally tens of thousands of dead Russians on the fields of Ukraine because they don't care about their own people. As far as the people that they're trying to subjugate, 
the battle plan for the Russians, whether they carry it out in somebody else's country or even in their own, was if you don't do what we want you to do, we will bomb you into oblivion. And I don't care if it's a kid or a mother or a grandfather who's getting killed. So we've got an aid package that's going to come up uh, probably in the next Congress. Um, there may be stronger debate on how that gets passed. And our congressional delegation has been mostly pretty supportive. I think Kevin Hearn was the lone guy voting against. He was part of 57 Republicans who voted against the $40 billion aid package back in May. Did he have a but, reasoning for that? Did you see? I think it's probably a mix of things. Uh, you know, we're talking, you know, multi billions with a B, you know, going toward this thing. So, and he's been very much a fiscal hawk. There may be some other things in there too. Um, and people's opposition has is different uh, depending on who you're talking to. But we need to keep in mind that if, if the Russians let 200,000 of their people die fighting this thing and they continue just blowing the, you know, blowing the heck out of Ukraine until all of its cities are flattened and everybody who could fight is just dead or just can't do it anymore and they win you know who's next the Baltic states Poland Romania Moldova I mean who's next yeah. and I think we need to understand that this us helping the Ukrainians is something that is protecting freedom now, for all of Ukraine's faults, for all of the corruption issues that they've had and, you know, some of the governance things they've had, they're on an arc of improving all of that kind of stuff. And what they want more than is to be like us, to be like their compatriots in Europe. They want freedom. They don't want to be in an oligarchy. And I think we got to, if we're going to be the leader of the free world, we need to act like it. Because the opposite of that is letting a murderous regime, and I don't use that word lightly, commit acts of evil that have in the past killed thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And in the case of the Holodomor famine of the 1930s, millions of people. We need to keep that in mind. If you just allow somebody to do whatever they want to, you're talking about a regime with a history that will allow for the deaths of millions of their enemies, be they civilians or not. That's what we're dealing with. Speaking of murderous regimes, you yeah. hear that the LIV golf tournament is being in negotiation with Cedar Ridge Country Club. What is that? I mean, I, all right, I admit, not a big golf official. I remember my, my brother-in-law, mentioning this back in the summer and he's kind of wound up, but I thought this doesn't, okay. So yesterday when a sports columnist, Bill Hasten broke the story that Cedar Ridge and Broken Arrow was in negotiations. The two, I know three completely unflappable people, you, Tim Chamberlain, who's on our editorial board, who's our presentations editor, big golfer, nothing phases him, calm demeanor, nothing works him up. And my brother-in-law, he's also just, you know, just mild-mannered people. Both of those gentlemen were on my phone, on my email, like, you have got to consider, we've got to take a position. 
this is an, they were outraged. They were so angry at this news. And I went down that rabbit hole because I thought of the two most calm, mild-mannered people I know are worked up about it. There's something there. And oh my gosh, doesn't take long to scratch the surface of LIV golf to realize there's no reason that we should welcome this into the state of Oklahoma for many reasons. It's first of all, just the moral bankruptcy of the ownership, which is the Saudi government. They started it to basically distract from its human rights abuses. They, the government, government agents of the Saudis killed an American journalist. They routinely use torture on women and political prisoners. They, I mean, it's just the list of human, they're one of the worst abusers of human rights violations in the world. And so they're using their incredible wealth, which they make on the backs of those who they oppress, to have this golf, rogue golf league. And they do, and the athletes don't qualify to get in. So like when you're watching the PGA, you know they had to qualify to get in. Mm-hmm. These guys are just like, I'll just take a lot of money. And and it's just they're they're just being bought by this these murderous people. And then, and, and and as I got into it, and believe me, I was getting my brother-in-law, he was in the back, I was on the speakerphone with him, and he's like, they're terrorists, because he was mentioning the 9-11 families follow the LIV golf events to protest. So we're going to have an, are we really going to have an event where we're, it's that's so offensive that the loved ones of 9-11 victims feel the need to protest outside your golf club? Seriously? And even if, even if, because the nine, you know, most of the 9-11 hijackers were Saudi, nothing happened. Nothing has, they've not been held accountable for that role. And Osama bin Laden, the mastermind, also a Saudi citizen. So if I started thinking, okay, even if, because there are people, as you know, that they're just not empathetic to international human rights abuses. They should be, but they're not, right? So strip that away. No one's attending these things. So the average PGA event <laughs> brings between 20,000 to 40,000 people from around the world into your community. You want these. We wanted this. You're lucky to get five or 8,000 at an LIV golf, and most of those are local. So you're not, it's not an economic driver. Yeah, if you're thinking it's going to be the PGA showing up at a Broken Arrow golf course, let me tell you something, that ain't it. No. And well, my brother-in-law, that's an example. He said, and he spends quite a bit of money playing golf and going, he follows a PGA. He'll spend money going these places. He lives two miles from Cedar Ridge. He goes, I will not go to that event. But two weeks later, he's going to get on a plane and fly to New York for some PGA event. So golfers are not, not all golfers are on board with this at all. But also no one's watching this. So the fact that LIV Golf can't secure a TV contract at, with all the, the available streaming services and platforms, you can only watch this on Facebook Live, YouTube, and their website. And so try they won't release viewership, but Sportsville Illustrated and, and I, think, I think it was Sports Business Journal. At one point, less than a thousand people were watching this event, uh, watching the event last year on, or this past year on Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. At most, 
they had like 115,000 watching a YouTube feed on a final round. But compare that to almost 2.5 to 3 million viewers at a PGA event. Yeah. This is not any sort of economic driver. So why, why this brings chaos, ill will, it will bring protesters, they won't bring in any money. Why would we want this here? I don't know. And I'm, I say, I'm not a golfer. I'm not, but I'm just, whether you look at it economically or from a moral standpoint, we don't need this. So I don't think it was, I don't think, I think everybody on the board's like, no, we need to take a stand that not only should Cedar Ridge reject it, a lot of them. Now we do have, and this is sort of interesting. I didn't realize, again, don't follow golf, but five former Oklahoma State golfers are in this league and one former OU golfer. And I think that's why they're trying to get into Oklahoma. They figure probably they got a lot of Oklahoma guys. We can do this. Sorry. No. Yeah, this ain't it, man. I think they're, uh, even if you were to say, okay, well, I don't really care about the Saudi thing. We're going to make a lot of money. No, you're not. No, and I kind of wonder if we'll end up, I, you know what, I, the concern also is that Tulsa and Oklahoma, we have a great reputation with golf. You don't have to be a golfer to know that we, there's been a lot of honor in hosting the, the U.S. Open, PGA events. They've been, they've been run well. They've, by taking this, if someone accepts this, does this solely that reputation? Does it then become a black eye on, you know, whether it was our fault or not, but it doesn't then make it harder for the PGA to go, you know what, that place, they, they got in league with the Saudis. I mean, this is just not, I mean, we talk about being patriots. This is not what you want to do if you're a patriot. So, well, on the opposite side of that, why don't you just dance with the date that brought you? The PGA. The exactly. LPGA. We like these people. They're good. I mean, okay, so, and I, I don't know, I just go back to how much money do you need? I mean, the PGA pays pretty well. So, okay, that's not enough for you? I don't know. I just, um, it, it just didn't take me long. And I really did try to come up with, what's a benefit? I couldn't come up with one. So I don't know if there's someone out there who thinks there's a benefit to this, an economic one, or, a, you know, write a letter. Please write us a letter. Sure. Glad to hear it. So, so anyway, um, so things are kind of getting busy. Got a lot of things going on. Anything this weekend? Gosh, this weekend I actually need nothing to happen. It's <laughs> after the whirlwind of the holiday stuff. I need a, I need a chill weekend. So <laughs> I think I'm going to take that. Well, good. I will be uh, hauling around a teenager and uh, to palm practices and such and getting stuff done. So I hope everyone has a good weekend. Any last One words? One small thing, holiday-related yes. thing. Even though I'm not like a huge Christmas movie guy, I'm definitely not a musical guy. There's a movie that came out called Spirited with Will Ferrell. It's kind of okay. a different take on the Scrooge thing. That's a musical. It is. I'm watching Hallmark movies and Christmas musicals. Bob, I ain't watching no Hallmark movies. Get out of here with that. You're just we got to have a conversation. Up. We're gonna have a whole other podcast on Bob's holiday traditions. All right, I'll watch it. You <laughs> suggest right. you can. I'll watch Check it. it. Out. It's funny. It's interesting. Personally, I'm watching Wednesday. on the phrase, good afternoon, when it's over. I'm watching Wednesday, which is 
amazingly good. So you've got to check that out then. It's about the Adams Family Wednesday, but it's nothing like it. It's just great. So anyway, I hope everyone has a good weekend. We'll see you next week. See ya.